Today's episode of the JJ Reddick Podcast on the Ringer Podcast Network is brought to you by World Central Kitchen. Their relief team is working across America to safely distribute individually packaged fresh meals in communities that need support. They're now serving tens of thousands of meals daily in some of our biggest cities like New York and LA. And they're launching initiatives across America to deliver fresh, hot meals to hospitals and clinics fighting on the front lines while keeping local restaurants and business as well. You can directly help the heroes in hospitals and clinics who are fighting for us, and you can help keep your local restaurants alive. Go to theringer.com slash WCK to donate. That's theringer.com slash WCK. We're trying to raise $250,000. And if you have the means, it's an unbelievably great and useful cause that helps our hospital heroes, emergency workers, and local restaurants. Please give whatever you can. The money goes directly to World Central Kitchen, and it's a charitable donation. Once again, that's theringer.com slash WCK. Hey, what's up, everybody? I'm Jamel Hill. And I'm Van Lathan. We're proud to introduce our new podcast, The Wire, Way Down in the Hole. We're going to recap, break down, and analyze every episode of the iconic HBO hit series, The Wire, starting from the beginning with season one. First episodes hit you on April 15th. Now, every podcast episode will include recaps, signature moments, foreshadowing, key character deep dives, little-known facts, and also awards such as We Love This Show But, the Stringer Bell Fuckboy Award, my personal favorite, who won the episode, and more. So subscribe to The Wire Way Down in the Hole on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. And we'll see you in West Baltimore on April 15th. All right, welcome to this week's episode of the JJ Reddick Podcast with Tommy Alter. A little change of scenery for me because my Wi-Fi is not working, so I'm in a different location. Different Tommy, undisclosed location. Yes, uh, very undisclosed. Um, with a beautiful um, map, a vintage map of Paris behind me. First of all, uh, we're not going to do power rankings this week. Uh, we're going to get to our conversation in a minute with our guest. But you threw out an incredible hot take last night on Twitter. Which incredible what? hot take. I threw a couple takes out on Twitter last night. What, which one are you referring to? I'm referring to your slow cooker take. <laughs> oh, oh, that the slow cooker is one of the great inventions of all time. That's not a hot take. That's a fact. You were going on and on about the coffee machine. The slow cooker is, a, is, an, ex, is an exceptionally more important invention than a coffee maker. Let me, let me tell you why that's, that's a terrible take. Because there's plenty of ways to cook something slowly. Low and slow. That's all you got to do. Right, you can cook it on a grill. You can cook it uh, in a smoker. You can cook it in a Dutch oven. You can cook it in the oven. I, I dude, I make ribs in the oven. Okay. okay? Yep. Yep. If you had kids Which and I you don't. were getting up at five thirty or six o'clock in the morning, and you had to like Which I'm not hand make, <laughs> yeah, you do pour over. You have to grind your own coffee, do all that stuff. No, nobody wants to do that. The coffee maker. Just a little boop, one button, boop. And then six minutes later, you have a steaming cup of gel. Come on. The coffee maker is important. I'm not going to hate on the coffee maker. I thought you were going to talk about the rom-com thing. That caused the stir too. We're going to address that in our next episode, not this one. Yes. People are very passionate about rom-coms. I've been on a, I've been on a bender recently. 
You know who uh, loves rom-coms is uh, my teammate, Nico, Nicolo Melli. Nico really? is a big rom-com guy and claims that Notting Hill is the greatest rom-com of all time. So I watched Notting Hill last night. Again, I'd seen it before. I don't think he's that far off. And we can get into this in more detail. Notting Hill is an exceptional film. <laughs> did, did you watch Sweet Home Alabama yet? Yes. I watched, I watched it two nights ago. And what was your thoughts? Six and a half out of 10. Six and a half. I lo- yeah. I, lo- I love, I love Reese. I think the, it's a very pleasant watch. I had a little bit of an issue with the end. Hmm. I thought the end was weird. I kind of felt bad for the, her New York, uh, for Andrew. Yeah. For the New York. Cause he wasn't husband, a bad guy. Fiance. He wasn't a bad guy at all. He wasn't it's a bad the entire guy. movie. I mean, his mom sucks. And, and I just, I, it just seemed a little, I don't know. It seemed a little biased against New Yorkers. For sort sure, of cla- sort of classic Hollywood, just like shit on New York. Yeah, I, I would, I would say they, they also did some classic like shit on the South scenes in the movie as well. They were shitting on everybody, but still, I also, I have a, do Civil War reenactments still exist? I, I'm, I'm going to plead the fifth on this. I actually, I have no idea. I, I, I'm, just, I'm fascinated by that. Like, I actually love to just be like a spectator in it yeah. for its. I mean, I would say, given the fact that there was the coronavirus protest rally in Michigan yesterday <laughs> and there were Confederate flags. In Michigan. I mean, what the fuck does the <laughs> Confederate flag have to do with coronavirus? And in Michigan. <laughs> I don't yes, there probably are Civil War reenactments. What are you watching right now? Give give the give the listeners a couple things to watch. Again, my Wi-Fi sucks. I'm watching nothing. I tried to watch The Road to Perdition the other day and every two and a half minutes, my Netflix would just stop working. So I'm watching nothing, man. I'm recording this on my my iPhone over my wireless network. I literally do not have Wi-Fi. We're gonna, we're gonna, I'm gonna try to resolve this before the next episode. Let's get to our guests. So we, had, we have Kara Lawson on. She is fantastic. This was uh, one of the most fun conversations we've had. We hit on a ton of stuff. Uh, Kara was an All-American uh, at UT, um, that's Tennessee. She was a WNBA champion, a WNBA all-star, an Olympic gold medalist in 2008. Uh, she won the sportsmanship award twice in the WNBA and the community leadership award once. She had a 16-year career broadcasting uh, with ESPN, and she now is an assistant coach for the Boston Celtics. Uh, so let's get to our conversation with Carol Austin. All right, let's welcome uh, this week's guest, Kara Lawson. Kara, uh, how has your uh, how's your shelter in place going? It's going well. Uh, I'm from the D.C. area. I grew up in Alexandria. So as soon as we were released from quarantine with the Celtics, uh, I drove down here. My mom lives down here. I've got a younger sister that lives here. And, uh, of course, a lot of friends and just familiar area. So for me, uh, this is a place that, I, that I've come to. And uh, I, this is where my house, I'm, I'm in my house. I have an apartment up in Boston, but my main residence is, is here in D.C. area. And, and uh, so it's been pretty low key and good, good to be at home. Where were you guys when the season got suspended? Were you in Indy or Milwaukee? We were in Milwaukee. So we, we had played Indy uh, t- that Tuesday night. And then flew to Milwaukee on the Wednesday and then Wednesday night, getting ready to play Milwaukee the next 
uh, the next day, uh, obviously everything kind of blew up on Twitter and then it became trying to gather as much information as we could. And then hoping we'd be able to be able to actually leave Milwaukee because everything was happening so fast and we weren't in our home city. So some people were worried we wouldn't, we wouldn't even be able to, to get home. Uh, but we were able to do so uh, the next afternoon. They had to call in a, a special crew for us because the crew uh, that was going to take us after the Milwaukee game wasn't there yet. We were in SAC, and I've talked about this on the pod before, but we were in SAC, and we were supposed to go to Utah. We, we were the next team to play Utah. And they basically had to find same thing, sort of like a special plane for us. They moved up flight time. We got out of there that night, took an overnight back to New Orleans on that Thursday. But those first like 48 to 72 hours when the season got suspended, there was just it was it was sort of surreal. I don't know if you can speak to that at all as like all this different information was coming in. Obviously, you're hearing stuff from different players. You're hearing stuff from coaches from the front office uh, waiting on guidance for the for the league. It was uh, it was kind of a, a chaotic few days. Yeah, I mean, I was scared because we had just played Utah. And then you're, you're sitting around, you're looking around at guys and, and each other uh, in our team meeting the morning after the season was canceled. And I'm just like, man, what if that dude has it? Like, what if that guy has it? Like, what if I have it? Like, and then you like, ha- you wake up with like a sore throat and that's not even like a symptom. And you're like, oh, I-, I bet I got it. And you just start thinking all of these things when you're in isolation. And uh, we did have, obviously, Smarty had it. And he went through the quarantine and then we all had to go through quarantine. Um, our, our whole organization, our whole travel party had to. And, uh, and then once we were cleared, uh, we were able to kind of go, go where we wanted to spend this, this hiatus. Were you reading anything about this like a week, uh, like at all before that sort of fateful week when everything went down or were you just sort of not really paying attention to it? No, I was paying attention to it. Um, my mom's older. And so, you know, initially all of the, or a lot of the talk was that the old, that the older, um, members of our society were more susceptible. And, um, so I was talking to my family about it, uh, especially the older members of my family, just to say, Hey, you should probably stay in, be careful till we, till we find more about it. So I've been having dialogue with my family members and my close friends and cautioning them about if they could stay home or not send their kids to school, that might be something to think about. Uh, but I was still working because we were all still working in the NBA. Are you getting, um, guidance or, um, homework to do from Brad? Are are you guys, the coaching staff, are you guys watching film preparing as if you're getting ready to play the playoffs? Is there, is there things that you're actively doing? Yes, we, we have, um, some assignments and then uh, we have creative license to work on certain things that we want to do. And then, uh, the way our team works, and I assume most of the teams in the NBA work like this, uh, you're assigned to a coach as a player. And so just keeping the direct line of communication with the guys that I'm assigned to work with, um, just checking in with them and, you know, making sure they're, they're doing well. That That's pretty much what, what I'm doing. I'm not checking with them every day. You know, I'm not trying to be annoying. Like, what's up, man? How's it going? Like every single day, but just checking to make sure I have a couple of young guys that, that I'm just trying to make sure they're okay. And uh, they're at home with their families. All of my guys are at home with their families. So, but yeah, I mean, we, we do have some stuff that we're working on. Um, but we're also working on just professional development ourselves, personal development ourselves, um, and then just waiting to see what's going to happen because, uh, you know, we're, we're in the playoffs, if they, depending on what the NBA decides to do. So if they do start right, say, with the playoffs, obviously we'd be, have to be ready to go right away. I was going to ask you, um, you know, you have a unique perspective because you played, obviously. 
Uh, and now you're on the other side coaching. Although we don't necessarily have any sort of idea of when a possible start date could be, a lot of the discussion now is what's it going to take to get back to game shape? And the players obviously probably want a longer runway uh, just for our own safety. And and obviously we want to perform well as well because for a lot of guys that don't have access to a private gym right now, they're not even touching a basketball. Um, so I just want to get your thoughts on that and, and kind of what do you think is like a realistic time frame when you sort of include this like 10 to 14 day period, it sounds like, where we're honestly kind of under like some sort of quarantine, you know, in terms of the amount of people we come in contact at our practice facilities. You know, I kind of feel like it gets longer, the longer we're in this. So if you asked me this like two weeks ago, how long it would take uh, for me, if I'm putting myself back in player shoes to, to feel comfortable playing at, at that elite level, uh, specifically if you're going straight to playoffs where it's even, even a higher intensity, I, I would have said, you know, a couple of weeks, but now, as this has gone on, I think we're almost five weeks or five weeks from it being canceled. Um, I, I think it is at least a month um, that that you would need uh, as a player to to get back and to get used to it. Just get through the soreness, get the soreness out. I mean, it's basically like start training camp day one. You know, it's like when I played, it's like the only day I felt great was the first day of training camp. That was literally the only day I felt good the entire year. I felt like crap the rest of the rest of the season. Now my body did, I should say, you know, and it's just the way it is. And you got to get through that and get to that point where your body is just used to that pounding again. Tommy, as a, as an NBA fan, like, do you think that we should play regular season games? Like they're almost to me, like, it sounds like they're talking about maybe fitting in like two, three, four, five games, like almost like an exhibition season. And from, from like a player perspective, like obviously we would want it. We're three and a half or four games out, whatever we are. We'd want to have a chance to get that eight spot, but for a team that's maybe like 20 games back, I don't know that they would, would want to come back for a month long training camp and then, then play four games or whatever it would be. Well, Kara, I want to run the idea. I've talked about this with JJ on the show before. I want to run the idea I had by you um, because I don't think that there should be, I don't want to see regular season games. And I feel like to the, to your point about the strain on your body and on your players' bodies, it's going to be challenging enough as it is to play, much less adding on whatever it is, an extra 10 games. What do you think about, and this has been talked about a little bit, but some sort of like single elimination tournament where you basically, rather than go back into it and say like, okay, you guys are playing Philly in a, in a seven game series. It's like, no, you're playing them in a, in a winner go home sort of setting. So there can be some closure on this season, which I think everybody wants and needs, but at the same point being like cognizant of the fact that like, it's not going to be super easy to just get back into a 30 game run. So you just want like four games. You want like the four rounds of the playoffs to be like, this is what I want, which I don't know whether, I don't know how realistic this is. I want, do you know this JJ? Do you know what he's about to say? Yes. He should know. I, I don't know whether he likes it. I don't know. Last night he said that that a slow cooker was one of the top ten inventions of all time. So I I, 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 I don't want, ever Kara. know what's coming this out of his what mouth. I want. I want I want every NBA team to go to like a random high school gym in Indiana, somewhere in the middle of the country, quarantine themselves there, and do a single elimination tournament. The top two seeds, so Milwaukee and the Lakers, get a bye for the first round. Everything else is March Madness. So it's win or go home. So there's no playoff teams and non-playoff teams. Everybody's in it. And you basically are seeded based off of your record. So it's like the three seed plays the 30 
da da da, do the bracket, build it all out that way. And so that way, if the Pelicans or whoever else, the team that's not in the playoffs right now gets hot, they could potentially make it. I don't know necessarily that that will happen, not with the Pelicans, but just with a team that's not in the playoffs right now, that they will be able to make that run. But I think from a fan's perspective, it will bring everybody in where it's like, okay, listen, we we want closure for the season just because our team wasn't the Celtics or the Lakers or whoever it is. Like, we still want to see them have a chance. And so I basically think like, throw everything out. This is clearly the weirdest year ever. Like, try it out. Like, what's the downside? No. <laughs> no. She's like, we, no. like, we worked, like, we worked too hard. We worked too hard to win these games to let these non-playoff teams in. <laughs> no, it's one game though. Like you think about like in a series or when you play in a series, man, it's each game is like its own decade. It feels like, you know, and it's so long and, and the roller coaster of emotions from game to game and somebody turns their ankle and can't play in game three and like maybe can play a little bit in game four. And you just take all of that out. And I don't know. I mean, I guess when you're saying fans, yeah, sure. I'm, I'm sure fans of teams that maybe wouldn't be in the playoffs would be cool with that. But I think what fans really like is these long series with the best teams in the league, just going at each other um, for seven games or potentially for seven games. That that's, that's always what I, what I was drawn to. You know, when I look back over playoff, I'm like, man, you remember that seven game series between this team and that team? That's what I enjoy is, is the top of the league, you know, duking it out and trying to win the whole thing. I don't know the answer. Um, I don't know that, that we can, we can get to that. Um, at least with the seven game situation, but we'll, we'll wait and see. And I mean, I, I, I want to play, um, if, if it's safe, obviously, um, you know, I, I want to play, I, I want our guys to have a chance to, um, if we can, we can finish the year on the right note. Yeah. I want to reiterate that too. Like I, I want to play, um, you know, I, I mentioned some pushback from, from players, like not wanting to play two or three regular season games. I want to like sort of reiterate something that I said earlier, which makes this so unique. The reason that we we need this extra time is that it's not like the off season. A normal off season, every guy has their basketball trainer, their body trainer, access to a proper weight room and equipment, access to a proper gymnasium. We're like piecemealing shit together right now. We're like just trying, like, is there a hill somewhere where I can run? Kara, JJ really misses his trainer. As the yeah. whole world knows. JJ cries Fact, himself I, I really do. I've got a I, little his trainer. like nagging thing going on in the left side of my sacrum right now. And I'm like, I just need, I just need my guy right now. Yeah. No, I mean, that's, that, that's a fair point. Like we've got a park um, a park in my neighborhood, a, a basketball hoop, and it's not a public park. It's our neighborhood park. So it's not closed. Like the hoops are still up. You can still go up there and play all the kids in the neighborhood are, are up there playing. Um, so I, I don't go up there because I, you know, I, I don't think it's it's safe to just be up there playing, but that's like the, the closest thing that you have. And I, I have thought about a lot about the players. And I mean, I, I work out just for, you know, general fitness and even just doing that is hard, you know, cause I hate running. Like, I don't like running. Like, I've never liked running. And um, I enjoyed running, like, in basketball because there's a purpose. I'm running to something. I'm running to defend something. But just to go out there and jog, like, people that do that and jog for, like, five, six miles, like, that ain't it for me. So uh, that's really the only cardio you can you can do um, if you don't have a machine in, in your house. And so it can be challenging for sure. 
Do you do you uh, in under nor- normal circumstances? But since you retired, do you still hoop? Do you still do you still play pickup? No, I don't play. Some of that is just like body stuff, you know, like just banged up and and just not wanting to like knowing that. I don't know. Like you hear all these people like, oh, t- how'd you how'd you tear your ACL? Oh, I was playing pickup, and you're just like you dumbass, like. Why are you doing that? You know, you tear, you see someone's like 45 and they tear their Achilles and like, they're just never the same. So that kind of worries me because I didn't have any injuries like that. I had one shoulder surgery in 13 years of playing. So I I like escaped a lot. And so I feel like if I keep trying to test that, I might, I might, uh, so I don't play, I'll shoot around sometimes and I've played a couple of times, but not this year. I haven't played this year with the staff. The staff plays a lot in Boston, but I haven't played this year, but maybe next year we'll see. Tommy, I don't know if I told you this, but um, and Kara and I talked about this on the phone the other day, but my freshman year of high school at Cave Spring was Kara's senior year of high, high school at West Springfield in Northern Virginia. And our team, not my team, but our, our, our women's basketball team played Kara's team in the state. Sem- it was the semifinals, right? Yeah, semifinals. State semifinals. First of all, Kara was uh, a legend in Virginia. And we got we got a, a raw deal at the end of the game, and, and Kara hit the game winning free throws. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, it, it's funny because I don't remember every game I've ever played. Obviously, there's too many at this point, right? Like, and so certain games in your career will stand out when you look back at your career, whether it's high school, college, pros. Um, if you're fortunate enough to play a long time, and and uh, I was telling JJ on the phone like that that was might have been the game I was the most nervous for in my life was that game, the state semifinals, because it's your senior year of high school. We were undefeated at the time. So we were trying to cap off an undefeated season. Obviously it's your last year of high school and we start playing this game and they just slow it down. They slow the game down. I mean, there, there's no shot clock. I mean, they're just taking the air out of the ball and I couldn't hit anything that day. Like just couldn't make shots. Those days happen. And uh, it was just, it was just a slow like just slog through the mud, man. And you're just sitting here like, no, like this is not how this is going to end. This is crazy. And uh, yeah, it came down to the last play. Um, score was tied. And uh, I drove in uh, with, the, with the time going down and shot it and got fouled and then went to the free throw line. And there was not much time left at all, maybe like one or two seconds. So I made the first and then missed the second on purpose so that the time would run out and we won. And it was a controversial foul call uh, in Cave Spring for sure. Uh, they thought I got a superstar call. I don't even think you could get superstar. Do you get superstar calls in high school? I don't even think those. I feel like you get the. I feel I got the opposite of superstar calls in high school. <laughs> <laughs> I got refs that were like, "I'm gonna, I'm gonna teach you a lesson, hot shot. I'm not giving you any calls tonight." <laughs> oh, it's a. But no, I was nervous, man. I was nervous for that game. What's the Virginia basketball scene like? It's different regions. That's the best yeah, way to put it. It's different regions. So I live in, so I'm, I'm from Virginia, but I'm in the DMV. So Northern Virginia, right? So uh, when I was growing up, the, the women's teams in Northern Virginia, usually one state, like sometimes there'd be other teams, but like usually up where we are in the DC area, like we just had a lot of good players, a lot of talent. Um, there's so obviously the populations, you know, great up here. We, we would win a lot of the, a lot of the state championships in, uh, in, on the women's side, on the men's side, it was Tidewater. It was a lot of schools from Tidewater that were, that were winning the championships. So Tidewater's like 
Alonzo Mourning, like AI, like Michael Vick, Cam Chancellor, like those are football guys. But a lot of those got Ron Curry. I don't know if you know who Ron Curry Joe, is. Tommy, but Joe Smith. Was, Joe yeah, Smith, Joe number Smith. one pick. So all those guys are down there from Tidewater. It's like great football down there. And a lot of those football players would play on the basketball teams. So they would win a lot and they would win a lot of uh, championships in football was, and basketball. Was, was Tidewater Virginia Beach or was yeah, it out? Yeah, was it outside? Is, yeah. it, is, yeah. it a, is it a public school or a prep school? Public. Yeah, all the, yeah, there so were different ones. The, the weird thing about you were you guys were AAA, obviously. Yeah, yeah, AAA. We were AAA my up until my senior year. So back then there were single A, double A, triple A in Virginia. Yeah. And on the western side of the state where we were, there were only like six AAA schools. But ah. then in like Richmond, Northern Virginia, and and Tidewater, which is like Eastern Virginia, Hampton Roads, Newport News, all those places, there were like four or five districts of six teams. In AAA, so all the that's why all, all the good schools were like over there. We yeah. basically there was like uh, one team that would come out of our side of the state or you know, our side of the state and, and go to state tournaments, and then you'd have you know much much better teams with more more kids too. Like what was the we had like twelve hundred kids in my school. I don't know how we were AAA to be honest with you. Yeah, we had like two thousand in mine. I think twenty twenty two hundred something like that. Did the DC schools play Virginia? Or no? no, because uh, because Only, obviously no. DMV has a great basketball history in just in the yeah, DC so, area. Yeah, it can be kind of confusing in DMV. So in Virginia, the public schools you play Virginia public schools in terms of like going to state and what your final final is. Same thing in Maryland, and then d- same thing in DC. But the history of basketball in the DMV uh, is so rich, and a lot of that is like the Catholic League. So it's called WCAC. So DeMatha, Gonzaga, O'Connell, PVI, the council. Like, I mean, we could, I could just list like hundreds of guys that have come from this area that um, are great hoopers and it's becoming better on the women's side. But when I was coming out, Virginia public school was probably the best in terms of talent. Um, maybe Maryland public school was right, was right there with us too, but um, it, it just what hadn't gone to the women's side yet. But yeah, I mean, when I come out uh, 99, like, Keith Bogans, Joe Forte, Roger Mason, Chris Monroe, Demar Johnson. Like it was just a lot of, a lot of good players, uh, you know, that ended up making it to the NBA um, and playing in the WCAC. And um, we've had some, some great players through here. I mean, obviously like Grant Hill was a Virginia public school um, kid at South Lakes. I remember going to watch him play in high school. I mean, JJ knows this, a ton of Duke guys. I mean, Johnny Dawkins, Tommy Amaker, WT Woodson, I mean, there's just so many guys from the D.C. area, um, you know, more more contemporary guys. Was Joey Beard? Joey Beard. I used to go watch Joey Beard play in number 42 at South Lakes. Yeah. yeah. I used to go watch him. Um, and then, um, you know, and then now you go to like contemporaries, obviously. I mean, like Quinn Cook, Tyler Thornton, or Duke, you know, guys that came from different schools, DeMatha Gonzaga. Young, you know, young, uh, young guy, Jeremy Roach, who's really good. He's coming from PVI going down there. Um, so there's just a ton of talent um, in, in the area and it always has been great summer leagues, you know, great outdoor leagues. Like you could just, you could find a game everywhere in DC. When did, when did Oak Hill become a thing? It was like mid two thousands. No, it was a thing when I was in high school because when I was uh, playing I think Steve in high Smith school, went there in like 95. Yeah. Cause they had like uh Stevie Blake and um, Travis Watson and those guys when I was in high school, uh, so it was a thing in the nineties for sure. Kara, have you ever been to mouth of Wilson, Virginia, where Oak Hill is? <laughs> no. I looked it up on like Google maps. That's it. And then I looked and saw where it was. 
There is literally nothing there. Like how far is nothing. that from where you're from? Martha Wilson. Oh, it's like two two hours probably. Did they call did you ever go? Did you ever want to go there? Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I mean like so at after my junior year, I gave like brief consideration to like Oak Hill and then Montrose. Um Montrose Christian, which is up, you know, in Maryland. Um I was gonna say that we my junior year of high school, we hosted a tournament in Roanoke. And we had Bishop O'Connell and Gonzaga down. We played both those teams, and they were uh, like ranked in all the, the the stuff. And like we beat them, so that was like that was like a huge deal, uh, you know, from where we were from because we we had like an inferiority complex on that side of the state when it came to like sports because it was everything was like so centric on Northern Virginia and the Tidewater area, and we just got no love. So um, I was going to ask you about your recruitment in high school. Did you always want to go to UT and play for Pat Summit or were there other schools involved? I know my heart a little bit, like I wanted to go to Duke, but my heart to stay in Virginia, like it was there, it was tugging at me a little bit. So I gave some consideration of that. I grew up wanting to go to university of Virginia. So I used to go to their basketball camp every year down in Charlottesville. Um, coach was, was named Debbie Ryan and uh, they went to three final fours in a row when I was in like fourth, fifth and sixth grade. Um, Don Staley was, was, was their play, was their best player, national player of the year. Tammy Reese, uh, they had these two twins, the birds twins, Tanya Cardoza, who's now the head coach at temple. So those are all my camp counselors. Like that's what I would go down to university of Virginia camp. It was an overnight camp. I would go down there every summer and play. And, um, you know, those are the players that I looked up to. So that's where I wanted to go. My older sister got an academic scholarship to the university of Virginia. She's two years older than me. And so she was down there in Charlottesville as well. Uh, wasn't playing any sports, but was a student down there. And it's only about a 90 minute drive from, from where I live. Um, so I would say growing up, that's where I wanted to go. Um, that was probably the, the school that I looked at as, um, you know, great academic school and then also um, great in basketball. But, you know, as you, as you mature and as you get to hear all these schools pitches and you get to meet the coaches and you get to meet the players and you get to observe the program, on television. And, and then obviously when you, when you go down on your official visits, um, yeah, it changed for me. Uh, I visited five schools. So I visited Virginia, I visited Duke, uh, I visited Stanford, I visited Vanderbilt and I visited Tennessee. And, uh, after going on the visits, I went on the visits by myself. I, my parents didn't come, uh, cause we couldn't really afford for, um, you know, to them to come because at that time now they pay for parents to come. But at that time you had to pay, you know, your parents had to pay, they could only pay for you. And, it was flying all everywhere. Uh, so, so I, I went on by myself and, um, you know, got, felt like I got a good feel for the schools. And at the end of the day, I chose, uh, I chose Tennessee and, uh, that was not a popular choice in my house. My dad was very upset. He was like super angry and he, he's, he refused to come watch me play. Cause I picked going to Tennessee. He wanted me to go to Stanford. Uh, my mom wanted me to go to Duke and I chose going to Tennessee. So my mom had to sign the letter of intent because I wasn't 18 yet. And so unless you're 18, you can't sign your own letter of intent. A parent has to sign it. So my mom had to sign the letter of intent and uh, my dad didn't come watch me play my whole senior year of high school. Uh, he didn't come watch me play my freshman year, my sophomore year, my junior year of college. And then finally my senior year in college, he, he came back and started coming to my games again. Crazy. Just because you didn't pick Stanford? Or was there something, I mean, yeah. I'm, not trying to, yeah. I'm not trying to get in your yeah. personal business, but that was it. That yeah. was the reason, the whole reason. Yeah. Cause, cause I didn't pick Stanford. Yeah. He wanted me to go wild. Yeah. So, I mean, it was a lot of sacrifice to go to Tennessee, you know? And, um, you know, because in fact, in fact, 
part of this that most people don't know, Pat didn't send me a letter of intent. She wouldn't send it to me because she didn't want this to happen. Like she knew my dad was not going to go along with it. And she didn't feel like it was worth like jeopardizing the relationship. So she, she didn't even send it to me. I couldn't even sign with them. So like signing day comes and, and, and I couldn't even sign anything cause she wouldn't send it to me. So I had to call her up and I was like, send the letter. Like you got to send the letter. Like, this is my choice. Like I got to choose where I'm going to go play. So and she sent it and signed and that was that. So my dad, my dad was tough. I mean, he, he was, you know, he was a Marine, uh, fought, went, went to Vietnam three tours and it was tough growing up, man. Like he was just hardcore. Like every day is like, like people are like, talk about training camp and like, Oh, this is boot camp. Like, bro, it was boot camp, like 18 years, like every single day. It's like something, you know, and just, just hard, hard, really hard. And just, um, this, this pushing, pushing you to be excellent, pushing you to, to have success, pushing you to do all these things and not having any, any thought of, um, I don't want to say failure. Like obviously failure is built into it. You're going to fail, but not having any, any thought of ever giving in to anything or to anybody. And it was like that from when I like can remember like three years old. Uh, I mean, four years old, five years old, um, just building this mindset into how you approach everything daily. And I'm not saying I was running like four miles when I was four years old outside. It wasn't like that, but I'm just saying the mindset and preparing you to, to be ready to face the world. So, um, yeah, it, it, it wasn't, it wasn't easy. That's for sure. Was there, did, did you have pushback with him when you were growing up? I'm sure you, it's, there's part of you now that like values that and realizes how, how influential that was on your success. But was there, was there a pushback period or maybe all 18 years? I don't know. Yeah. There's pushback every day because there's a lot of my dad in me. So, right. So I'm super stubborn and there were some things that he'd be having me do. And I'm thinking, this is the dumbest thing. Why am I doing this? You know? Um, so yeah, there's definitely pushback, but, um, I, I don't, I wouldn't say part of me, part of me is thankful for it. I think all of me is thankful for it. I mean, I, I know my parents weren't perfect. I no parent is perfect. And so are there things that you look back in your childhood? I'm sure we all do. And you're like, man, I wish they would have done this different, or I wish they would have made this decision. Like, yeah, sure. But at the end of the day, like my dad built me to last man. Like that's what I'm like. I'm here. I'm built to last. Like I'm built to go through anything. And there's nothing that I've encountered in my life that, I haven't been prepared for like not one thing. And there's nothing that scares me in terms of like something I have to work for, something I have to wait for something that somebody that maybe is tough for me to crack initially. Like I just feel like I'm built to last. And so that's carried me this far and, you know, hopefully it carries me the rest of the way. That's amazing. Why was he so, was it the academics? Like why was he so set on Stanford? Yeah. Yeah. The academics, um, you know, just, just, the networking and the different connections that you make as, as an undergrad, uh, at, at an institution like that, he felt like, um, that, 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 that would set, set me up for life after basketball, being a young woman growing up, there wasn't a WNBA and the WNBA for me came along in high school. So it wasn't like I went to bed in third grade dreaming about being a professional basketball player. Like if I did, it was the NBA. And even though maybe at eight, I thought I could be in the NBA. Like you, you realize like, you know, once you hit puberty, like things are changing. Right. And so you're not going to, you're not going to compete in a certain way against guys. And so he was more concerned with setting, setting up for the rest of your life. And even though there was a WNBA, it's not a lot of money. You're not having the ability to retire from playing a professional sport. 
and not work, right? You're not able to set yourself up. What is going to give um, you the best chance to succeed after basketball is over? And so I think that was the, the mindset of what, of what he was thinking about. Hey, it's Bill Simmons. I just wanted to make sure you were listening to podcasts on Spotify. Here's how you do it. First, search for your favorite podcast on Spotify's app. They have a library of over 750,000 podcasts at this point. So let's say you're searching for the Bill Simmons podcast with rewatchables or the Dave Chang show or binge mode or the Ringer NFL show. Once you find them, click on the follow button. That's how you subscribe. Then click on those letters near the top of the app that say podcasts. You can't miss it. All the podcasts you're following will pop up separated by episodes, downloads, and shows. Wait, it gets better. On Spotify, you can adjust the speed of the pods to seven different speeds. 0.5 times is the slowest. I actually sound drunk at 0.5. Listen to this. Yeah, you can get drunk Bill. You can also do 0.8 times, 1.2 times, which is my favorite. Everyone sounds like they had a good cup of coffee. You can do 1.5 times. You can do two times. And if you're completely insane, you can do three times. Here's what that sounds like. Why would you do that? I think that's how we communicate with aliens. Anyway, Spotify's app connects directly to many of the best automobiles in the world. It even has a CarPlay feature that's pretty cool. It's really, really good. Best of all, it's free. Download Spotify on any device, and you are good to go. Look, I don't want to app shame you, but you should actually be embarrassed if you're not listening to podcasts on Spotify. And if you don't believe me, listen to Drunk Bill at 0.5 speed. Tell him, Drunk Bill, the Bill Simmons podcast. Listen on Spotify. I have a question for both of you guys uh, about college, with both with uh, with Coach Summit and with with Coach K. Like, at at what point? Because they're just such sort of like larger than life figures. At what point? when you got to school your freshman year, did they lose the, like, okay, this is this, yeah, the luster, like this is this iconic figure who is all the, all the different accolades and everything. And like, Oh no, this is just the coach. That's like yelling at me to do this. My first year is just like entire haze, man. Like it was so hard. She yelled at me every day, like every practice, every drill. I'm not exaggerating. It was just tough. So I didn't really desire to see her, like to even look at her or see her (laughs) off the court that much. I just wanted to get through practice. Like that was like my goal every day. But I think probably by my junior year, she was still, she would still yell at me, but I, it didn't, I took it differently. I should say, I think with Pat, the thing that was really hard for me was she built so much like into how she coached you, like psychologically how you tick. And it used to drive me crazy. So I'm pretty organized in like my thought and organized in like how I like to do things. I wouldn't, I wouldn't say I'm OCD, but just like there's a certain way I like to do things. Okay. You can tell me to do anything. Like you can tell me like at the start of practice, at the end of practice, we're going to run 25 suicides. That's going to suck. But I know that I have 25 of them. So I'm just going to do them. And in my head, I'm just going to get myself to that place where I'm going to do this. And I can get my head to a place where I can, I can do that stuff. As a player, I could do that. But then we'd like be on like 24 
And then she'd go, oh, we got five more. And just move the goalposts. The expletives that would go through my brain, not out loud, were just like, just tell me I had 30 in the beginning. Like, if you would just tell me I have 30 at the beginning, I'm fine. But now I've got to do, and it was just, it was constant. It was like this intellectual, like warfare. And it was just every day. And obviously she knew I was like that. And she was trying to get me to understand that that's not how life is. And that's not how basketball is. Like things change and you got to be able to handle it. And once I got past that part, I would say by my junior year, um, then I was more comfortable not only handling that, but also more comfortable expressing to her what I felt about things. You don't have to cuss, but I will. I felt like at times <laughs> playing at Duke was a was a mental fuck. Like it just every day felt like that to me. Coach, it wasn't even that Coach K would yell at me. Like you talked about r- like random games that you remember in your career. Like I remember the four or five random times where he really got on me. One of the times he got on me was um, I I broke the ACC scoring record. We had an afternoon game at Temple. I found this out after the fact, but John Chaney had told his team, he said, that, that, that motherfucker's not getting the record today. And so they played like a box and one slash triangle and two on me. They had like basically two guys chasing me and I ended up, I had an okay game, whatever. I had like 13 points, but I got the record. And we, we, the next day we're watching film and he pauses the tape and I had decided at halftime that I was going to put gum in my mouth because I had done that before when I didn't have a good first half, I would put like a piece of gum in my mouth. Just, you know, you change it up, you change your shoes, you do something. There wasn't a whole lot we could do at Duke, but I was like, I'm gonna put a piece of gum in my mouth to get myself going. So I put a piece of gum in my mouth. So you spent like probably, you know, 20 minutes of this film session being like, you don't chew gum. What the fuck are you doing? You know, and I'm just like, I literally, I just wanted to change something up, man. They're playing a box and one on me, but no, he he never had to yell at me, but I did think, I did think, and it, 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 it has helped shaped me. And I also got to play for Stan Van Gundy for five years and that helped shape me as well. But playing for coach K and playing for Stan, like it taught me a level of, of like diligence and holding yourself to like a standard and not necessarily needing someone to like push you all the time, like being sort of, and you're, you're naturally, you know, you, I'm sure you were the same way you got to Tennessee, your dad was pushing you, but you have a, a certain level of self-motivation. And so that's, that's one thing in terms of the luster. I swear this is true. Like the luster never wore off. It still hasn't worn off for me. Like I was a kid at seven years old who dreamed of going to Duke. I got to do it and the luster never wore off. And now I'm 35 and I'm, you know, I'm friends with coach and I get to spend time with him. I can call him anytime I want. We can talk. The luster still hasn't worn off. He, he for, for whatever reason, I just hold him in sort of, you know, other than obviously my, my dad, I saw, I, I hold coach in like the highest regard. Yeah, no, I mean, it's, it's the same for me. I mean, obviously coach some has passed on and, um, but some of the best memories I have with her, that, that, that's kind of a really cool evolution that happens um, with, you know, a player and a coach when you're no longer kind of under, under them. And the same thing happened with me and coach summit, uh, after I graduated, uh, became really close, really close friends, actually, um, lived right next door to her for a few months. One, one season I was rehabbing, um, an injury in the WNBA and I lived right next door to her for, for like four or five months. And so we, we would eat dinner, uh, at night 
almost every night together. And, um, you know, it was, it was awesome. It was awesome. So, um, yeah, there's, I, I would agree. I think just that, that motivation and just the discipline and the accountability more than anything of like, Hey, if you're going to do this, do it the right way, do it the right way, do it the right way. Every time, even now, like, you know, whether you're working out or whatever, I'm not working out for anything, but like I do it hard because that's the way it's supposed to be done. How, how many times did you guys play uh, UConn when you were uh, at, at Tennessee? Yeah, we played them a lot. Um, so I was in the part, part of the rivalry where we played two games a year in the regular season. So it, it got really popular, obviously started in the mid nineties and then got, got really, really popular. And when I was in college, they decided to do a home and home, even though we weren't in the same conference. And my freshman year, my sophomore year, we played them twice in the regular season. Um, and then my junior, senior year, we played them once. Um, man, they were a tough team. I mean, we lost to them three times in the final four when I was in college. Two of those were, were championship games. Uh, they had great teams, great players. Uh, obviously, I've, I've known all those, all those guys for so long. I mean, Bertie and I have known each other since we were eight years old. Uh, you know, we've been playing against each other since then and eight or nine years old, played soccer against each other, played basketball against each other, uh, grew up, obviously, um, you know, you, you play guard and you're one of the top players in the country. You're, you're going to know those people really well. So played, played with quite a few UConn players in the, in the WNBA, never played with a Tennessee player in the WNBA, which is pretty, pretty interesting when you think about it. Like, it's just a weird mathematical thing that happened, but, um, yeah, a lot of battles with those guys and, uh, those games were crazy. Like they were so loud. They were, uh, I remember my first, my first, uh, Tennessee UConn game, my freshman year. Um, and we, the first game was at home and our, our stadium was 25,000 in Thompson Bowling, which is, uh, when I was there, it was 25,000. I think they've lowered it now to maybe 21 or 20, but it was 25,000. It was sold out. And on the jump ball, uh, they tipped it back. I, I got it. I passed it ahead to catch and catch scored a layup and uh, I could not hear anything for like the next, the rest of the game. Like you just couldn't hear each other. Like it was just too loud. Um, congrats to catch, by the way, let me get, let me put that in for making that all the fame, man. That's obviously, uh, she's awesome, but yeah, so it was, it was nuts. So that, I think it was the Oh three UConn team yeah. had Sue. No, two, oh two, oh two. It was Oh two. Yeah. As birdie being when Ace dogs. Yeah. 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 They went undefeated, obviously. <laughs> yeah. They're really insane. good. Yeah, they're definitely, I mean, that team, O2 team, I mean, if you were going to do like short list of like greatest women's college teams, you know, they're, they're, that team's definitely on the short list. I mean, you can argue which team's number one, whether it's like the SC teams with like Cheryl Miller and the Gee Twins or like the Tennessee team with like all the Meeks, like Shamika, Tamika, Samika. Like there's obviously good, um, you know, good choices for that. But uh, yeah, that they, they were a really good team, future pros, future Hall of Famers. Uh, really, really, really tough to defend. What was your uh, What was your experience like in the WNBA? Because you played a long time. I, I I couldn't find anywhere you did not play overseas in the off season. You never went overseas, which I know a lot of the WNBA players do. What was What was your experience like in those in those twelve years? So I started out playing in Sacramento. Uh, played there for my first seven years, and I was, you know, it, it's kind of it's kind of funny. Um, you know, some, some of our rookies, some of our young players with the Celtics, um, kind of, kind of had to go through this, uh, when they, when they got to our team, I got drafted to like a really good team. 
like a playoff team, a, a veteran team, a team with like a ton of, of good players. And so sometimes rookies get drafted to a situation where they're rebuilding and they're getting to play right away. And they're getting to play all the minutes. They're getting to score all the points. And sometimes you're drafted to a team where you just got to wait and you got to wait your turn. And uh, I got drafted to a team in Sacramento with a ton of, ton of veteran players. Uh, I was able to, to get into the rotation though and, and play meaningful minutes and playoff runs. And we were able to win my third year in the league out in Sacramento. Um, Sacramento is a great basketball town. Uh, at that time was when like the Kings were rolling. So it was, you know, C Webb and Bibby and Doug Christie and Peja Vlade, Bobby Jackson. I mean, some of the most fun teams. So I got a front row seat cause I didn't go overseas, uh, in the off season. So I got a front row seat to watch those guys play and actually did. That's when I started really doing TV was, um, working for the Kings and studio, um, and covering their games and, and, and watching them go through the league. So that was uh, where I really fell in love with the NBA was seeing it night in and night out up close. And, uh, but I love my time in Sacramento. It, it was great playing there. Uh, then the team folded uh, after my, after seven seasons. So in 2009, the team folded. I was a free agent at the time. So I got the opportunity to pick where I wanted to go. It was my first time in free agency. And uh, I decided to go to Connecticut. Uh, Mike Tebow is the coach there. He's actually in Washington now. They won the WNBA title last year. And he was an assistant coach on the Olympic team uh, when I played in the Olympics in 08 in Beijing. So I had some familiarity with him because he had coached me for like a year and a half as we were, were building up uh, to that, uh, to that um, competition. And the other thing was uh, my ESPN career was starting to take off. And so from a just logistical standpoint, it made sense, right? Like to be in Connecticut because that's where Bristol is. And then also to play there. So I went there and um, it was a huge conflict for most of the fans in the state because they hated me from playing at Tennessee. And now all of a sudden they had to start cheering for me. And it was like really hard for people. I could tell like they would stop me in the grocery store and just say like, I don't like you. Like I, you know, I don't know what to do. And, and it was like, I was Dr. Phil, you know, in the, in the baked goods aisle or something. And then I'd go to produce and somebody else was like coming up to me and saying like, I don't really like you, but now I have to cheer for you. But they ended up liking me and cheering for me. Obviously they didn't boo a home home team player. And I played, played there four years. And then uh, my last two years I played here in DC at home, which was really cool to kind of finish, uh, finish here at home. That's, that's, that's an incredible story. Um, <laughs> So we talk about like as, as NBA guys, you know, we talk a lot about like preparing for like life after basketball. And it sounds like you started preparing very early in your career, you know, while you're in Sacramento and doing this broadcasting stuff. Is that something you sort of fell into or was that something like, oh, I have a curiosity about that. Let me go see if I'm any good. What was what was what what started that uh, that 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 part of your career for the television? You mean? Yeah. Yeah. Sorry. This might be a little bit of a long story, but um yeah, I didn't, I, I didn't plan on doing TV. I, TV is not anything that I, that I ever wanted to do really. Um, I enjoyed watching sports and I enjoyed playing. And when I was in college, I wanted to go to law school when I finished playing ball. And at the time, the WNBA had a program where they would pay for part of your tuition if you went to school concurrent with your career. So in the off season, I could stay here and go to school and they would pay for part of it. And then I could play in the summers. That seemed like a pretty good, good deal for me. Uh, so I wanted to go to law school. I wanted to coach or coach for a little bit and then become an athletic director or run a team, like run an NBA team. Like that was my goal. And I felt like getting a, a law degree would 
just help me in, in that pursuit. Right. And so my senior year of college, this is like what I'm set on. Like I want to play pro basketball, but I didn't really have like a lot of goals in pro basketball. I wasn't like, Oh, I'm gonna play. And you know, you listen to guys getting drafted. They're like, I'm going to win three, four championships. And I'm going to do this and do that. Like I didn't have like many goals in pro basketball. Like I was like, I'll play for a little bit, but I'll use this to figure out what I'm going to do. Uh, and that's, you know, obviously something my dad taught me and something my dad harped on. And he would always show me examples of like athletes that were, doing things concurrent to their career. He used to talk to me about like a moderate shot when he was in still playing in the NFL, he was working on like what he was going to do next. And so he would always tell me like different examples and, and, and encourage me to do those types of things. So my senior year of college, I'm in DC, I'm from DC area. I want to go to Georgetown law school because I can live at home and not have to worry about paying room and board. And then I can get the tuition part of the tuition paid for by the WNBA. And I know that Pat Summit will write a recommendation for me, right? But I need like two. So I'm racking my brain. I'm trying to figure out, I'm like, yo, who can I get from Georgetown that will like give me a letter of recommendation and like help me get into law school? Mind you, I haven't even like taken the LSAT yet or done any of that, but I'm just trying to think ahead. So Georgetown men comes to play Tennessee men in, in, in Knoxville. And the coach at the time, so sandwiched in between like Big John, like I was a Georgetown fan growing up, like obviously like Pat, Big Pat, Pat Ewing, Zoe, Dikembe, AI, Victor Page, like, like, I mean, it was just being here in DC, like it was just crazy. Like everybody's Georgetown fans, right? And so um, in between Big John and JT3 was a guy named Craig Eshrick who coached, uh, who coached the Hoyas, okay, as a head coach. But he was also uh, Big John's assistant for a long period of time. So he is a head coach at Georgetown. He also is a graduate at Georgetown Law School. So I'm like, this is perfect. If I can get Craig Eshrick to write me a letter of recommendation, he's the head coach of the basketball program and a graduate of Georgetown Law and Pat Summit. Like, I'm in, right? Like, I got to be in if they, if they get that. So I stand, I stand outside the locker room after they play. They end up, they beat, they beat Tennessee. And I'm waiting outside the locker room for this guy. Just like, like a groupie or something, man. Like, I'm just standing there. And the ushers are letting me do it because I'm a player there, right? And I'm just getting nervous for some reason. Like, I'm like, I don't know. Should I do this? Like, he doesn't know me. He's going to be like, is this weird? And I talk myself out of it and I leave. So I waited outside the locker room for 30 minutes and I leave. And I go in my car and I drive to the strip. Uh, The strip at at, at UT is like where all the bars and restaurants are. We call it the strip in Knoxville. So I went there and I went to go get uh, something to eat because I hadn't eaten dinner. So I'm sitting at this spot in, um, in Tennessee and, uh, used to get like one of my favorite spots in college. I used to get like chicken, chicken bowl for, for dinner or whatever. It was super cheap. That's why it was my favorite spots. Cause it was cheap. And I'm eating by myself. I'm eating like it on a stool, like facing the strip, like facing the traffic. And I'm just like pissed at myself. Cause I chickened out. Like, I'm just like, man, like you're just a punk. Like you're, you're a punk. I can't believe you chickened out. And all of a sudden the Georgetown bus goes by the window and it's going the wrong way to the airport. So like, as I'm sitting watching if the bus goes by this way, like to actually get to the airport, you're supposed to go that way. And I'm like, why, why are they going that way? And I like lean forward and look, and it's pulling into the McDonald's parking lot across the street. And the guys start getting out. And I'm like, yo, this is your chance. Like you better go in the McDonald's parking lot and get this shit done. So I go to McDonald's parking lot, wait for him to come out. I don't know what he had. McFlurry, whatever, fries, nuggets, whatever it was. And I just walk up to him at uh, the McDonald's parking lot 
introduce myself to him, talk to him a little bit while the guys are getting their, their post-game meal. And, uh, you know, got the, got the confirmation. He's like, yeah, just call me. He's like, when you apply, call me and, uh, you know, I'll help you out. So McDonald's parking lot. <laughs> that's a great, that's a crazy yeah. story. <laughs> so that's how I, I don't even think I even really fully answered your question, but that's what I wanted to do. And then, um, a week after I took my LSAT, uh, the next year. So a week after I took my LSAT, uh, I was in LA at the uh, NBA All-Star game. So in 04, the NBA All-Star was in LA and my phone rang and it was somebody from ESPN asking me if I wanted to come audition for a, uh, a analyst job there. And I hadn't applied for anything. I hadn't even like put out any feelers or asked anybody. So I'm like, man, what's going on? Like, why, why are they calling me? But I accepted and, uh, you know, I went up there, auditions. I figured at the very least, I didn't know what I was doing at the very least. If I didn't get a job, maybe I'd get to meet Stuart Scott or something like that. And it would be good. And I ended up getting a job and working there for 16 years. Never went to law school. Yeah. <laughs> Seriously. I like that you, you casually put that goal in, by the way, about running an NBA team. I like that you dropped that, by the way. Yeah. That's a, yeah. I like that. That's a yeah, great call. No, I mean, it's, it's been, I, I wanted to run something when I was in, when I was in, um, when I was in college, um, I wasn't sure if I wanted to, to run like a college athletic department or run, run a pro team. Um, at the time when I was in college, there obviously were very few women doing, I don't think there was maybe only one in power five running athletic departments. Now there's more, um, obviously uh, on the pro side, there, there's not a woman in pro sports running, running a team. Um, but yeah, that was, that was something that was my goal. And I figured as I went through law school and kind of figured out what, you know, I, I would be able to decide whether I wanted to go the college or pro route. I want to go back to broadcasting for one second before we, we talk a little bit about the NBA. Um, and this is as much a question for me as it is just for the, the listener. But when in, in your broadcasting career, you did studio work and you did color com- commentary, which did you like better? And was there because I've gotten this feedback from certain guys and it seems to me like there's a little bit more uh, juice that you feel when you get to do the games because you're in the arena, you're close to the action. Uh, so it's a little bit, uh, I guess, dif- different experience being being at the game and doing doing color. When I started, I wanted to do games. That's what I want to do for all those reasons you talked about. I mean, when, you, when you've played it and you felt it like we felt it in this high-level competitive environment, when that all of a sudden is not happening in your life, you miss it. And so while it's not the same, you still get that some of those same feelings when you go do a game that's really good and you're sitting courtside and you can feel it and you're talking to people in warmups and, and you're able to sit there and call the game and hear the crowd and feel the energy. So I, I enjoyed that. But uh, I, I think it was about three, three or four years into my time at ESPN, they asked me if I wanted to audition for a studio position. And I didn't want to. But then I looked at some of the people in the industry that were like the best or perceived as the best. And I saw that there were very few people that were excellent at both. Like there, there were, there were like cats that were good at like calling games. And then there were cats that were good at like being in the studio. Like Chris Weber. Chris Weber is a great example of that. I think he's great in the studio. (laughs) (laughs) Just going to leave, just going to leave that there. Just going to leave it there. (laughs) So I'm going to leave it there. Point being, like, there wasn't a lot of people that were good at both. 
And I thought, man, if I could master both of these early in my career, like that would make like me pretty valuable, number one, but would also uh, give me the ability to do a lot of different things and be a part of maybe certain games or certain tournaments because I had the ability to do both. And that was the best decision I could have made early in my broadcasting career. Cause I, I guess I would, I guess I would, you know, liken it to like speaking a language. It's much easier for all of us as humans to learn languages when we're younger, right? If you even teach a three-year-old a language and he picks it up really quickly. I didn't want to get so far into my broadcasting career of just doing games that it was that much harder for me to learn how to be a studio analyst because they are different. And, uh, so I did it and then had a nice steady diet of both and, uh, you know, pretty good at both. You know, I was able to, to, to be good at both and, and, uh, that worked out. So as far as advice, like I would, I would encourage you to try both. The simplest answer I can give as far as like how they're different is in games, I always felt like I had to learn a lot about a little. And in studio, I always felt like I had to learn a little about a lot. So when I'm calling a game, I'm studying, I'm deep diving on these teams, right? And what they're doing and what I'm anticipating and, and all those types of things. When I'm in studio, I'm taking this broader uh, and I'm learning a little bit about a lot of teams. Because if I'm in studio for men's college basketball and it's a Tuesday night and we're three weeks away from selection Sunday, then if there's an A-10 game between you know, two teams and one of them's on the bubble, like I better know something about them. Like I can't just know, you know, about Duke and Carolina. I've got to know about the other teams too. And so uh, that was more of a, that was a challenge in its own way, but then you had sh shorter time to talk about it. So learning how to speak, like it was crazy. When I was doing studio a lot, like if you said to me, I'm not going to do it now, so don't ask me to do it. But if you had said to me, hey, talk for 45 seconds. Like I could talk for 45 seconds and stop like at 45. Or if you said like, Hey, we, we need you to do an instant analysis. It needs to be a minute 30. Like I could do it in one take and stop. And I'd be like, what's the time? And they'd be like 129. I'd be like, yeah, that, that was how I competed there in the, the studio. Yeah. I guess you have to find ways to compete because there's yeah. no, uh, there's no result that you get. Is there, no. I mean, maybe there is. No, you're not, you're no. not going home being like, I won tonight. Right. I mean, you do have satisfaction of certain things, like um, particularly during games, like if you're if you're able to forecast or project something and, and it's, it turns out happening that way or. But, yeah, there, there's not there's not any of that. That's that's part of the reason why I'm here, why I'm in Boston. Well, so, yeah. So how did that happen? How did the transition happen to coaching? Well, I started coaching back in 2017 for USA basketball for three on three. So I finished playing in 2015. And then 2016, I kind of took that summer off. It was the first summer I had off since, I don't know, elementary school. Um, because in WNBA, we always played in the summer. So we never had summers off. And uh, just trying to figure out what I wanted to do and was have been involved in USA basketball. Obviously played on junior teams, um, you know, played all the way up through senior teams. And then uh, been on committees there. Like uh, I've been on the junior national team committee for the last eight years, um, helping to select those teams. and. Uh, then three on three came into the picture uh, as it's going to be in Tokyo, uh, an Olympic sport. And they needed a coach for the U18 women's team. And uh, so it was like high school age kids. And uh, so I was talking with them, USA basketball. And I said, you know, if you need somebody to coach the team, like, I mean, I've never coached before, but 
you know, like I'll try it. I'll coach it. So I get this team uh, players in 2017, four kids. I've never coached before in my life. Never coached. I mean, obviously I played, but it's a little different. Uh, so I end up coaching them. Uh, we end up winning the world championship in China. Uh, and all those kids are playing in college. They're actually going to be seniors in college right now. And then I just started coaching. So in the next year, uh, they gave me the U18 women and the U18 men. So then I had both of those teams. And then uh, we went to Argentina and played. And then the next year, they gave me like U18 women, U18 men, senior women, and then senior men. So I had four, all four teams last summer. And then we were actually supposed to go to India in March for the Olympic qualifying tournament, but with the coronavirus, everything got shut down. And obviously Tokyo was postponed to, to 2021. So that's how I got started like coaching. But as far as the opportunity with Boston, um, Brad just sent me a text one day. I was last, last summer, I was in Florida doing some work and I had a text from him. Uh, I didn't have, Brad and I knew each other cause we all know each other in basketball, but like, I didn't have his phone number. Uh, he didn't have my phone number. And just text me and said he wanted to chat about something. And that's kind of how it started. That's a hell of a start, though, to go to go first coaching job, uh, for, you know, in, in terms of the, in the NBA for the Celtics. How, is, how has that experience been, uh, you know, just being in Boston and being around what is one of sort of the, the best organizations uh, top to bottom uh, in, in really all the sports. Obviously, that was a big part of, of the decision making. By the way, I'm, I'm gassing Boston Celtics up because Danny and Brad gave me g- g- got you know they, they I had to get permission from them, so I feel like I owe you them something. Yes. <laughs> no, yeah, but they are, but they are great guys. Uh, they um, but yeah, um, I mean that was part of the calculus too, JJ. I mean, like I, I did talk to other teams. It wasn't like it wasn't like Boston was the first team that reached out to me. Like I, I talked to a number of teams over over the last few years, but if I was going to make the jump from a career that I had done for 16 years and had been really successful in, like it just had to be the right fit for me and the right organization. And that doesn't mean there's anything wrong with any of the organizations I, I, I talked with too. It just, it had to be a good fit. And when I talked with Brad, when I talked with Danny, when I um, got a chance to, to have those conversations, um, I don't know. It's just, it just felt, it felt, felt right. It felt like a good group. Uh, for me to start my coaching career with. And uh, now having been through, I mean, I don't know if I can say a year yet because of these circumstances, but having been through most of a season, there's nothing that happened this year that made me think, oh, I made the wrong decision or, oh, this isn't the right place for me. Um, All those things you hear about are true about the Celtics um, from top to bottom, from ownership to the front office, to the coaching staff, to the players. Um, Everybody is, is, wants to put themselves in position to, to win a championship. And it's been great. Um, Brad is, uh, I mean, Brad checks all the boxes. I mean, he's obviously a great basketball mind. Um, he's a, he's a great person to work for, uh, because he gives you freedom to do things, um, the the way that you, uh, feel is best, uh, with your, with your players and, um, you know, gives you a lot of responsibility. And that was something Brad and I talked a lot about. I mean, coming in, I didn't want to be, I didn't want to be a token. You know, I didn't want to be somebody that had a title, but didn't have responsibility. I just wanted to be able to have the same responsibilities as everybody else. No more, no less, but just pull the same weight as every other coach on our staff who's really talented does. And, um, that, that's what it's been. I mean, he, he gave me his word and, and that's what it's been like. And, um, I'm, I'm pleased, I'm pleased to be there and, and hopefully 
uh, we'll have a chance to be there for a while. I was going to ask about Brad's secret sauce. What's Brad's secret sauce? I would say he's, Brad's he's, he's, sauce. He's, he's, it's rare that someone is so universally loved. Yeah. Universally loved, not just as a person, but in what they do. Yeah. Like there's not many detractor. Brad doesn't have many detractors. I don't think I've heard a negative thing going back to college, like from anybody, any capacity. I mean, I don't, I don't know. I, I mean, know you're not going to say anything bad about sauce. it. Is there's no secret sauce? I mean, he's just, he's just the same. Like he, he's the same every day. Like he's consistent and he's a good human being. Like he's thoughtful like he makes, he, he thinks about decisions like in the whole, like 360 degree, 360 degrees when he's making them. Like I said, he gives you freedom. He gives you responsibility and he trusts you. Like he trusts people. And so when you work there, you want to reward that, right? With, with your best. Effort. He reminds me a lot of Pat. I don't think I've ever told him this. So if he listens to this, he'll hear this, but he actually reminds me a lot of Pat Summit. And people might say that, or you might hear that and you might think they're nothing alike because Pat at times could look like a raving lunatic, even though she wasn't the way she goes out, but they're actually like really similar. He's one of the people probably that I've met in my life. That is the most similar to Pat, like that I've ever met. Um, because he's very competitive. Like, like Pat was, um, he's always trying to figure out ways that he can improve, that he can get better. And, um, he's very loyal and all those things that I was talking about, he'll test you. Like he'll, He'll test you for sure. Um, not a different way than Pat does, but he'll test you. So um, that's, I mean, for me, that's the highest compliment I can give someone because of, you know, what I feel about Pat. But he's definitely one, one, one of the people that's closest to Pat, in my opinion, that I've ever been around. I don't think I gave you the secret sauce. Sorry. No, I I, I, you gave me enough. You gave okay. me enough. <laughs> Actually, uh, Brad, Brad does listen to the podcast. It's, it's, yeah, it's not really a humble brag. I'm just bragging. He does, he does listen to the podcast. Uh, and he'll, he'll like randomly text me too and be like, Hey, uh, listen to such and so. I'm like, All right, this is great, man. This is great. Yeah. I know Danny, I don't know if Danny still does, but I know Danny, I know he used to listen to the pod. Uh, him and, him and Mike Z, they used to. I think a lot of random people listen to it because they have a, right now because they have a lot of time on their hands. The yeah. question would be, is Brad listening to the pod? Uh, when you guys oh get no no Brad's been saying this to me does. for years he does for years yeah he listens to a lot of podcasts so I, I'm pretty sure he does I'm sure Danny has even listened to this one if they don't already we'll see we'll see <laughs> we'll see um I wanted to ask you about Kemba Kemba's always been one of like my favorite players in the NBA we had him on the pod I think two summers ago um but one of the reasons I love him obviously he's super talented but it just seems like he is uh, an exceptional teammate. He, now that he's playing in Boston, he's getting a little more, I guess, national pub than he was in Charlotte. And you see these like quotes on Hoops Hype or these articles about just his leadership. And I just wanted to hear you sort of speak on on him as a as not not necessarily him as a player, but him as as like a teammate and as a leader. Yeah, Kemba, I mean, you do, you run out of adjectives. And I feel like sometimes when we just like stack adjectives back to back to back to back, it can sometimes feel like disingenuous, like you're doing overkill. But like all those things you hear about Kemba in terms of how thoughtful he is, how caring he is, how important the game is to him, 
how, how much he's willing to share and impart knowledge to younger players um, to build up and to allow space for our, for our younger um, guys like um, JT and JB to continue to grow and, and, and learn and, and take over games and grow into all-stars. I mean, all those things, I mean, you know this, JJ, like they're not possible unless you have guys and veterans on the team that allow for that space and allow for that to happen. And, and Kemba has, has done that uh, for us this year. He had the whole team over for Thanksgiving um, in New York uh, at a place. His mom cooked for everybody, like the whole team, like coaches, staff, families, everybody's families. Um, he's just really thoughtful uh, in how he approaches it. And, and he's such a worker too. So, I mean, all those things that he does every single day, his routine, his shots, um, his competitiveness, all those things add up. And um, yeah, I think the world of Kemba, I mean, I, I covered a lot of Kemba at UConn. You know, it's funny, like a lot of the guys in the league, I covered, obviously, I was working at ESPN. So I did a lot of games that year, um, you know, when, when they won the title, um, when they were kind of struggling through, through the Big East that season. And so um, he's not changed. Like he's the same guy, like he's the same guy that he was in college that he is now. And, and um, yeah, it's, it's, um, it's, yeah. I mean, I, I just feel like to piggyback off what you said before, man, like I just hit a home run being in Boston uh, with the staff and the type of guys that we have. Um, I could go on down our roster. I mean, um, but I don't want them to get two big heads, uh, you know, during this hiatus, but I love all those guys and uh, have great relationships with them. And they are good dudes. Like we just have a bunch of good dudes, Kemba, Smarty, Gordon, JT, JB, all of our guys are just, um, are good. And, and I think that's, that's what helps makes it make, make us good. To be honest is, is we have guys that care about it. We have guys that, that want to be better. And we have guys that are okay to, you know, step aside from, from game to game if somebody else uh, has it going. And I think that's why we, we we are where, you know, where, where this, when the season was put on pause, that's why we are where we are in the standings. Obviously, you know, you talked about your, your, your history in, in, in our sport, both, both in women's basketball and in men's basketball, but, and you've been around the NBA now going back to, you know, announcing Kings games, providing, you know, a, a, being a studio analyst for Kings games, but is there anything this year that has happened or kind of being a little more up close as a coach that has has changed your perspective of the NBA, or were there any moments where you're like, "Holy shit, this is just this is just different." Like I I didn't know that this is how it was. Is there is there anything that you can sort of point to? I think the thing that has surprised me the most is how sensitive you guys are. Um, and I don't mean that as a no, I don't mean that as a slight. I don't. But you're way more sensitive than like WNBA players, like in general. And so that was a big surprise for, you know, big surprise for me as I'm like coming in. Um, I just didn't know that. Like, you don't know that until you're, you're there and you're in the locker room, you're seeing the day to day and and all that. And uh, again, I'm not saying that's a bad thing. I'm just saying that was a difference. That was a a big difference that, that being there every day that, that I noticed. Are NBA players the most sensitive athletes in sports? Well, I can't say that because here's why the athletes that you see, outperforming it's totally different when you're in with them every day in the environment because when they're performing as as athletes we're that's we're performing we're projecting what we want you to see about us during games okay sometimes we can't hold it in sometimes it slips out but we know we're being watched so we are projecting what either we think you want to think about us or what we want you to think about 
and not that there aren't guys that are just unedited and, and whatever, but I'm just saying like, that's how it is to answer your question, Tommy, like I would not be able to tell you anything about NFL players or the environment or MLB or all that. The only thing I can tell you is that yes, NBA players are more sensitive than WNBA players. I have observed that. That's not a bad thing. I'm just saying that's been my observation. I cannot speak to WNBA players. I can only speak in my own experience <laughs> with NBA players. I can co-sign your feeling because <laughs> I feel the same exact way. We are so fucking sensitive about Makes everything. Yes. About everything. About everything. And we're all so smart and observant that we see everything. And because we're sensitive, we then take that in and we internalize it. So it could be when I say we see everything, we see we see every article. A guy who says he doesn't see an art, a bad article, about a bad article, good article, whatever, we see everything. Uh, if one teammate's getting such and such treatment and another teammate's getting a different treatment from the front office or from the coaching staff, we see that. We internalize that. And then you're right. There is some projection. There's projection out on the court. There's projection in the locker room. There's projection on the team plane. How do I want my teammates to see me? How do I want my coaches to see me? Um, yeah, it's it's and it's every day. It's, it's a every lot. Day. It's every day. I think we all do that on some level, just as human yes. beings. You know, yeah. when you go to work. So it's not like, um, but yeah. And and again, I'm not saying that WM players aren't that way. I'm just saying on the scale. NBA is a little bit farther down the road. That's it. Do you think that has anything to do with the fact, like everybody talks about the NBA being like a player's league and players now kind of get how much power and influence they have. So do you feel like the sensitivity aspect is almost heightened because of that? Could potentially be heightened? Um, like we're more sensitive now because we know how much power we have and when we feel like that power when we're not we're not seeing that power respected that we were like oh yeah. we just we react to that I, I think it could that could be part of it for sure but i also think it's just emotional immaturity on on a lot on a lot of guys part because a lot of the league is just so young you know at 19 years old or 20 years old or 21 or 22 years old 23 years old um certain stuff when i was in college bothered me like like the stuff you're saying, like maybe attention to this or attention to that or lack of this or lack of that. And then as you get older, you, you kind of figure it out and you become a little bit more mature and you figure, and you figure it out. But, you know, I, I think that it is a player's league. Um, and they do have a, a, a lot of control in terms of where they go and, and what their, um, you know, what the league looks like, the competitive balance of it and all of that. But I just was surprised by it, man. Like, I, that, that I wasn't, uh, I don't want to say I wasn't prepared for. I just didn't know that that, that was the case. And once you figure it out, it's, it's fine. And the, the biggest challenge uh, for me is to try and there's so many players, obviously there's, if you have a full roster, it's 15 players and there's 17 with your two ways. And so just trying to find time where you can have meaningful interaction with each guy and not so much on a daily basis. That's, that's near impossible. But um, you obviously have the guys that you're assigned to, but I like having time with, with our players. Like I like doing stuff with them. I like um, having conversations with them, whether it is on the bus, you know, after practice on, on the court, whatever it is. And uh, that's hard to try and do because there's just so many guys. Kara, this has been uh, absolutely awesome. Uh, can't thank you enough for your time, your insight. 
Uh, this is this has been a really fun conversation. Thank you so much for coming on the podcast. All right, guys. Thanks a lot. Thanks, Kara. All right. Well, that was a lot of fun, Tommy. I want to thank our listeners, as always, viewers on YouTube. Uh, thanks for tuning into the pod. We appreciate it. Everybody stay home, stay, stay safe. Do you have anything to add? No, we got some good I'm ones really coming up. I'm really looking forward to your rom-com hot takes. Oh, it's coming. We're taping it. We're taping it early next week. We got a good episode coming. All right. Sounds Save good. Save it till then. As always, thank you. We'll see you guys soon.